0: Go ahead and take the speed up. Your number one now, runway on like two seven three land green
1: dot. Welcome nice nash guys, guys. Hello and welcome back to the Green Dot EAS podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. My name is Hal Bryan, and I'm one of the hosts of the Green Dot. I'm senior editor
0: ADA for print and digital content and publications. Sitting next to me on my left, it is I'm Chris Henry. I'm the museum programs coordinator. Thanks, Hal. Appreciate it. Good to be back, and uh, uh, as always, I always like to say that my favorite shows the ones we have guests, which are most of them, I think. Sure. <laughs> and uh, tonight, uh, someone uh, is here uh, to be part of our museum speaker series, which happens every third Thursday of the month. Um, and tonight, we're going to talk about the SR-71 Blackbird, and we are here with Colonel Richard Graham. Richard uh, Graham, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it.
2: It's all my pleasure. I enjoy being up at Oshkosh, and uh, I hope uh, have a good time.
1: Well, it's uh, it's certainly a privilege not only have you come out and speak, but also to take some time in advance uh, as we're recording this uh, shortly before your speech. So, really, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. So, uh, so Richard, before we get into flying the flying the blackbird, uh, as we all you know compare notes on our personal experiences, <laughs> yes. uh, uh, let's go back to the beginning. How do do you have an earliest aviation memory? Were you a model builder as a kid, or what what sparked that aviation interest when you were young?
2: Uh, you hit the right on the nail uh, on the head uh, aviation has always been in my blood uh, my, my real dad died when i was two years old he was a uh, uh, in the world war ii and died at uh, long island naval hospital oh, wow. my mother obviously liked men in a uniform because two <laughs> years later she married a navy pilot uh, he flew f4 corsairs for the navy and he also had his instructor's rating. And as I grew up as a child, I was always around aviation because he's put on his flight suit and his helmet. And, of course, he'd put it in a closet where he told us, me and my brother never touch this stuff. <laughs> you know, what do you think happened when they went out that night? My yeah, brother and I the put, helmets on the on. <laughs> we put on the flight suits and the helmets and pretended like we were fine. So it got into my blood back then. And um, he happened to have his instructor's rating. And he taught me how to fly when I was 16, got my license at 16, uh, in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, okay. flying out of there. And
1: what would you have been flying at that point?
2: Like, it was a Piper Colt. The Colt. Cool. Piper Colt, the old fabric two seater.
1: Yeah, that's sort of the two seat tripacer. That's
2: it. Yeah all right so then uh, take us
1: on from there so you're you're flying recreationally you're, but you're going to school or you're, start, you're in high went school Went college
2: college in akron university and my goal all the time was to get in the air force and i uh, went to rotc air force rotc at uh, akron university in akron ohio and uh while i was there i uh, got my commission in 1964 into the air force and started pilot training at craig air force Base in selma alabama T-37s, T-33s. That's the only airplanes we had, then, primary and the, the secondary airplane. Then when I got uh, my pilot's wings, uh, I stayed on as an instructor for another three years in the T-37s. Uh, I happened to be one of uh, something I volunteered for. I was what they called the spin demo pilot in the T-37. Uh, I was the only pilot on base that gave all the other instructors the series of seven spins with the T-37, and I enjoyed that. <laughs> and that's when I—that's when I knew I was getting not so enjoying spinning. I was gonna say uh, seven pilot, seven, seven different spins every day. Uh, then I got in and volunteered for the Vietnam uh, experience, and uh, I got selected and to fly the F four. Very, very lucky. Actually, my original assignment was the Voodoo, the F one hundred one. Oh wow! Our F one hundred one. And uh, once I went to survival school up in Spokane, while I was up there. Uh, Five of us that were all going to the Voodoo uh, 101, we were told at survival school uh, to stop. Don't go. Everyone else will graduate, but you guys wait because all the 101s are coming back out of Saigon, and you're all going to get new assignments. We went over to the bar for the next five nights and got drunk. We we had no earthly idea what what airplane we were going to end up with. Very fortunately, out of the five of us, I got an F four. All the others got some other airplanes, and they were not F fours. Wow! So,
1: and at that point, the voodoo you mentioned RF. So that would have been the reconnaissance variant yes, of the voodoo, RF sort of right right at the end of its yes it end was of the, its career. That's it. Gotcha. And
2: that got me into the F four, and uh, out of survival school, uh, went over to Vietnam. Uh, my first assignment was one year at uh, Udorn, and uh, in the Triple Nickel Squadron. And flew there for a year. And then after that, uh, my assignment was to Okinawa, Japan, to fly the F-4. And that's where I saw the Wild Weasel mission, because they had a Wild Weasel squadron. And I said, hey, can I volunteer for that? It's a little <laughs> bit different than the F-4. Yeah. And they Boy, said, if yes. you like spins, <laughs> you know, you'll know you love this. Yeah, that's about right. So I got into the F-4 Wild Weasels. I had to go down to Nellis and get the checkout for six weeks, I think, was the course. Then back to Okinawa and then i was in a wild weasel pilot and uh, while we were over in korea our whole squadron deployed to korea up the kunsan of f4s and uh, the f4 wild weasels and while we were there the squadron commander got all of us together for some meeting we had no earthly idea what it was but it was very unusual to get all of us together in one room and he says gentlemen we've been tasked to get uh, six crews i'm sorry nine crews and six airplanes down to Karat to help augment the F-105 wild weasels. And then everyone in the audience raised their hands and then he selected who he wanted to go. And I think I got selected mainly because I had just came back from Vietnam where the others had already been in Vietnam, but they had a big lag in time. So I was fresh and I went back with them into the wild weasel mission. Now we'll touch on the wild weasel mission. For
0: those who, who are listening that maybe aren't familiar with it, um, this is a mission where you would take F-4s or F-105s and actually go out and hunt surface-to-air missiles.
2: That was the name of the game. Uh, we were on a hunt. Uh, we tried to, uh, we had some, uh, what I call the, the gigahertz and the megahertz guys were in the back seat, and they could <laughs> see the frequency spectrums. And they knew what it was, where they were at, and then that's what we were doing. We'd go try to find, find them, and uh, uh, as long as they stayed on the air, they have to have a launch. So as long as their radar is searching for you, the, the Shrike missile, the AGM-45, will then home in on that frequency and fly right down and, and wipe out the van.
1: So you're, you're bait at this point. Yes. Really, you're trying to, you know. Trolling. Trolling, trying to get, get the, because as you said, you know, as soon as the radar comes on, then the Shrike can home in, could home in on that.
2: But unfortunately, the Shrike is slower than the, the missile coming at you. So <laughs> the missile will hit you before the Shrike will hit the van.
0: Yeah. Now, can you tell me, and we kind of talked about this earlier, but um, so a, so a surfaced air missile launches and it's going to come after you. Can you walk me through the you, what your
2: maneuver would be, or what the maneuvers would be to get away from it or to evade it? Well, you did, if you thought it, if you had thought he had launched, your maneuver was to go ahead and just start hoping you could get it visually. Once you get it visually, you have the you have about a ninety percent chance of. of survivability because once you get it visually you can wait at the hardest part is waiting you had to wait and wait and wait till it got closer and closer and if you did a real hard turn a real hard like a split s right down into the ground it would go ballistic it could make the turn so that was our goal was to go and get real close and wait and wait until you got it visually see in the plume uh, at, at night very easy in the daytime very difficult and just make a turn into it you didn't want to try to turn away from it because it's going but two times faster than you are.
1: Is this something like an Sa7? Is that what
2: no, they were Sa2s. Sa2s. Okay, so wow.
1: Sa2s.
2: But this is something something like the
1: size of a telephone pole. Telephone, on pole. A, you know, <laughs> with the plume of fire coming out the back. And are you? What's your emotional state? At this point, are you, are, you, are you scared at the time? Do you postpone no. that until later? Do you, do you wait till you get to the bar and have the beer in your hand and then get scared then? No. I'm scared right now. I just <laughs> want to – because it's, it's incredible to think about.
2: The only time you really get scared probably is uh, after you think about it, uh, what you just dodged, what you just evaded, what you did. And then you start thinking, wow, you know. And, and I've been up there in a four-ship, and I've seen, number one, get hit with a SAM. And you think by the good grace of god it wasn't me and, uh, and i'm talking about a 105. Uh, the 105 well, it was a very very the airplane doesn't it's not a nice tight turn airplane it, it just goes it's a great airplane for that but turning and evading a sam is very difficult in a 105 whereas in the f4 we could actually pull some g's and out maneuver it basically the 105 always seemed like it was you know it was famous for the wild weasel stuff but it never seemed like it was a good fit that I, that's my personal impression. Uh, there's other airplanes better for it, the F4 and some others that came along after that. But it it was a great job for homing. It 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 had a more sophisticated equipment. We did. It had the uh, uh, the follow-on to the Shrike, which was the AGM-78, and that missile, they could stand outside of harm's way, fire it, and it would have a it would know where to go it locked in the position of where the radar van is he could be heading 180 out and it would do a 180 degree turn and go back and hit it so they could stay out of harm's way whereas we had to be to be successful we had to be inside of harm's way in the f4s wow
1: well uh we're sure glad you did and we're sure glad you came uh came through it but if uh normally we would have started the show with with a thank you for your service but it's never too late so make sure that that's uh Thank you. Make sure that that's, that's clear.
2: Wow. Thank you.
0: The one thing I do want to touch on before we go too much further is you had told me a, a story about training in the F four, and you had uh, an instructor pilot that was uh, someone that we should mention
2: uh, for sure. When I was going through pilot training at Davis-Monthan for the F four, uh, my instructor was very unique and. Uh, uh, I didn't know much about him, but I always thought this guy is always thinking outside the box. He was, he was teaching me things that weren't even in the syllabus. And all the other students were into the F4 program. They were getting the syllabus, and I got everything outside the syllabus. And I couldn't think what's so different about him, but he was different and strange. Uh, it wasn't until I got to Udorn, you know, uh, five months later in the Triple Nickel, And all of a sudden, I start hearing this name, and it happens to be my instructor. And uh, it was called Pardo's Push. Johnny Pardo was the gentleman who pushed another F4 that was damaged down to one engine and eventually down to no engines, and he had him lower his tail hook while Johnny Pardo got the hook onto his windscreen on the very front pane, which is bulletproof piece of glass. It's the only piece that's bulletproof. And, and he used it and he gave him a push into into uh, Laos where they could both eject safely and not be POWs, as opposed to being ejecting over North Vietnam, which is where they were, and they would, they would have been prisoners of war. So he pushed him into safe haven and Johnny, well, he was pushing this airplane with no engines, he had a firelight on the other. So he had one engine doing this toboggan to save, to save him and get into Laos and then eject. They knew they were going to eject. They just wanted to eject into a safe haven. Nice. And the re- rescue forces were already being called to go ahead and pick him up.
1: And that was your instructor. So that you, was my said, instructor,
2: and I didn't know it. Talk I'm about never.
1: thinking outside
2: the box. Yeah. Wow. I just knew he was different. <laughs> and, and he taught me things that, like I say, weren't in the syllabus, which, was, which were good. Wow. So how do you
0: go from flying Wild Weasel missions to flying the SR-71? What was that transition? I was over
2: at Okinawa after the, 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 uh, the 11 days of uh, Christmas, the end of the Vietnam War. We went back to Okinawa with our airplanes. And there I saw the SR flying around. I did a tour down in Taiwan with the F-4s. Uh, we set nuke alert at the southern end of Taiwan. A lot of people don't think no we did that with four F-4s on nuke alert. Uh, then I was thinking all this time in Okinawa, I saw the SR-71 flying around the skies. And I said, you know, F-4, you've been in it for four years, four and a half. It's time for another airplane. I'd like to fly that one. So I put in my application. No one comes to you with the SR. You have to want to get into the program. So I put in my package, which is a very thick package. You sent it to Beale Air Force Base in Northern California, north of Sacramento, by about 25 miles. And at Beale Air Force Base, there's a, a group that just take all the applicants, for, an applicant for the pilot, an applicants for the backseater, which is a, a navigator called the RSO, Reconnaissance Systems Officer. So the pilot in the front, RSO in the back. And these piles stack up and about twice a year, they need to bring in a new crew and get them trained. And you would get a group all around a table. You would have a whole stack of pilots, whole stack of navigators, you pass it around. On the front cover of each applicant was a yes or no. And if you made it all around the table with all the, the wing commander, the vice wing commander, the DO, the squadron commander, crew members, if you made it all the way around with yeses, you got invited out for your interview. So that was the first one. So I, very fortunately, I got past that. They needed a pilot. So I was on Okinawa. So I grabbed one of their tankers and rode back to Beale Air Force Base for now my one week of interview. The first two days you meet with all the, uh, all the commanders. You've one-on-one in their office, wing commander, vice wing commander, the DO, the squadron commander, the crew members, you meet with them and you interview on a one-on-one. That's the first two days. The second two days you evaluate, uh, get evaluate, get evaluated in the T-38, you get two flights in that with an instructor to see how well you fly the 38. And have I never flown the 38 before? Because I came out of the T-33s. This is a strange airplane to me. Most other pilots, it's a normal airplane they trained in. It wasn't the same for me. So two flights of T-38, and then you get a simulator ride in the SR-71. Those take two days. They put all that together, and on the fifth day, you go down to Travis Air Force and take a physical. It's not as expensive. Hardest and demanding is the astronaut physical, and it's not as low as an Air Force physical for a pilot. It's about halfway in between. And uh, you go down to Travis, and you take this physical for two days. Me to shrink. A shrink talks to you for about an hour, make sure you're sane, and uh, you're not going to take an airplane and do something stupid. And you go back to where you came from. So I got on a tanker, went back back to Okinawa from Beale. And then you just wait and wait, and uh, three months later, you get a letter of acceptance, or you get a letter of rejection. And a letter of rejection is very nicely worded. You know, you you try it out for one of the hardest airplanes to get into, et et cetera, et cetera, or you get an acceptance. And I was very lucky to get an acceptance letter in 1974. And then I arrived at Beale. Now you got your foot in the door to train. Your training is nine months long. Anywhere along there is a fail point before you go fly an operational mission. The first part of it is simulator. For your first three months at Beale, you get to fly the 38 a lot. You already get checked out in that. So for the first three months, you and your navigator, when I showed up in uh, June of 1974, Don Emmons came out of B-52s as an EWO as my backseater. For the next seven years, Don Emmons is the only navigator I flew with, and Rich Graham is the only pilot he ever flew with for the seven days. We don't mix and match crews. Yeah. We always stay mated all the time. If one crew members gets sick for some reason, the backup crew would take over a mission. So we never mix and match. It's very, very important in the SR 71 at 2000 miles an hour that you need to stop. And you, you don't have time to talk about, it. you consciously know what each other's thinking, basically. So you start your training, you get 12 simulator missions. One through 12. For each one of the numbered ones, one through 12, you get two practice missions. Each of these missions in the simulator are about four hours. They consume a whole day or the whole afternoon. You get two periods for the simulator. So you take the two practice missions, you have a scenario, you know all the emergencies they're gonna give you, you know all the stuff, it's all scripted and you study it. Dawn and I would study it at home. We'd go over everything at home at our houses, what we're gonna do, how we're gonna handle this and how we're getting our crew coordination done. So you pass the two practice, then you take a check ride for mission number one, it's going to encompass everything that you've learned in those first two practice missions. Then you move on to number two. Same thing here, you get two practice, then you take a check ride for number two. Each one of those 12 missions, is a fail point we try to wash the crews out before they get to the airplane the airplane is very expensive and takes a lot of time so we want to weed them out early and simulate a program that's why we have this demanding one through 12 programs with two practice flights for each one
1: wow so uh after that you make it through year 12 obviously you did then uh was there a uh, was there a B model online at the time that that you could use as a trainer? Was was that always available, or or early in the program? Was, was there a point where your first flight in the airplane was was as pilot? And no, there were always so a trainer. There was we always had, a trainer. We
2: had uh, two B models and one C model. Oh, okay. the C model is a back end of a I believe it was a YF12, and the front end was a. A twelve or an SR seventy one. They mated the two together and made a trainer out of the two. Oh really? <laughs> and, and it was a the front end of it was a a mock up that was always down at uh, the Skunk Works. It was, uh, I've got some pictures in one of my books of it sitting on a on a on a dolly, if you will. That was the front end, and it took a, a back end of an. A YF-12 that crashed, put them two together, and that became a B, a C model. So we had two Bs and one C that's trainers. An, that's incredible. <laughs> For those
1: that don't know, the YF-12 was the prototype of a fighter-interceptor version of the Blackbird. And uh, you know, you imagine what the world, how the world might be different had those sort of gone into full production, and <laughs> what that life would have been like. So, um, so you've done your twelve missions. Now it's time to go to the real airplane. You talk about what, uh, what that's when like. When you get to
2: the airplane. Uh, uh, after your five, again, each one of those are a fail point. Right. Uh, we had a few guys that never refueled before, and that was pretty demanding for some of the guys on those five flights to get the, the refueling down. And uh, we had, like, I can recall one pilot that didn't make. He got through all the simulators, but he didn't make it because of the the five missions. There. Really. I and the refueling I mean, I think,
1: is wow. mandatory with the SR seventy yes, one, isn't it's, it's it? It's a isn't must every, have every mission. You get to altitude. Isn't that sort of the first thing you're doing? That's is it. It. And you're tanking off of a Q model, KC-135. Can you talk a little bit about what makes that one, what makes it a Q model, what makes it a little bit different?
2: Yeah, at Beale Air Force Base, we had two squadrons of Q models. So we had 35 uh, airplanes, two squadrons. The Q model is nothing more than a KC-135, basically, but it has the fuel tanks that can segregate JP-7, which is what we use in the SR-71, a JP-7 fuel, in the JP four or five that the, the, the tankers use. So they had special tanks to do that. And that's what makes it different from a regular KC-135. It also had, we had some secure bearing and ranging, a bearing pointer and a DME to each other. The, the tanker could tell where we were at and we could tell where it was at. It's a classified system that the other tankers don't have. So those are the only two differentials between any other tanker. Interesting.
1: Presumably that system is not classified anymore, totally, or, or is it breaking news here? <laughs> no, no, no.
2: Everything on the airplane has been declassified, <laughs> or I wouldn't be here talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough.
1: Okay, Colonel Bob Smith, we're yeah. glad to have you on the show. Uh, so what do you remember about your first actual flight uh, in the airplane after those those same sessions? The
2: first flight... Uh, you talking about the B model or just, just the just
1: A? Your first time in in the airplane period, so maybe in that B model as the trainer. The B model, yeah. Uh,
2: it, the, the simulator training gets you real good for that, and that's why the, the refueling is the only thing you can't replicate in a simulator. So those who hadn't refueled have a trouble. Uh, I I find it pretty easy. Uh, it does take a little bit of work. It's it's very different refueling. Uh, it's an airplane where when you get underneath the airplane, and uh, it's hard to describe it. You're sort of you get it. A, a, your neck has to really bend up to look at the airplane at the director lights, so to do that you lower your seat all the way to the bottom. So then you aren't getting this this big angle on your back of your neck where you get a headache. So you lower your seat all the way down, and then you get a better view of uh, underneath the airplane. And what speeds are you flying to refuel? Ah, uh, their fueling speeds were right at um, it, it's. We started out at 375. I'm sorry, we started out at. Uh, 325 knots and as he got lighter and we got heavier he goes from 325 up to 375 knots so it's all an acceleration very slowly while you're doing it because for me at 325 that's i'm about as slow as they want to go and then as I want to go, and then the tanker's just slowly, and you don't even notice it while you're flying because you're always moving the throttles. You just don't realize you're advancing them all the time. Sure, so it's just a natural byproduct Mm -hmm. of the weight transfer. That's it. That's weight transfer. Interesting.
0: That's really what I never realized that. Mm -hmm. Do you you remember the first time that you flew? um, Well, you know, even before that, I want to ask you this. Do you remember the first time you actually went out personally one-on-one and saw an airplane that you were going to fly? Did you have any sort of impression of that airplane up close and personal with it
2: well i i had the luxury of seeing it over i'm sorry over okinawa when i was flying the f4 so i saw it airborne and once i put it in my package i got to go over i met some of the crews at the bar at the officers club and they said come on over we'll give you a walk around the airplane and stuff like that so i saw it over okinawa as well
0: what was your general impression of it what did you think uh well
2: seeing it in the sky is very very impressive very impressive and then you get walking around it uh, you realize it's a bigger airplane than you thought it was because what you well I I would well, I, sometimes I tax out my F fours and I've got an SR taxing behind me or in front of me so I could see it relatively but once you get on the ground and see how big it is it's it's more than you think.
1: Well, the F four to me is always a bigger airplane than you think it's going yes. to be. So The F four is already a big airplane, but the SR seventy one quite a bit longer. Yes, it makes the you know that uh, never quite happened fighter interceptor version, <laughs> you know all the more. Uh, all the more sort of intriguing
0: can you tell us a little bit about um however deep into the story you can your first mission your first mission as a crew uh,
2: like i said the first mission was other than the refueling which i had to sort of get used to uh, it flew just like the simulator i mean the, tr- the training is so perfect I, I didn't feel any uncomfortableness or an ease now the landing you know the simulator doesn't really you can't see it. it we have no visual in our simulator so there's no visual but the landing is something you get to work on those five missions more than you do a lot of touch and goes on those five missions
1: so what about your first operational first operational mission it's time well, your to go first to
2: operational mission is flown at okinawa not at oak not we had two locations we had raf Mildenhall over in england and we had okinawa japan over in the island of okinawa and if you think about those on a global scale they're about halfway around the globe from each other and that allowed us to cover the entire northern hemisphere with in-flight refueling. Wow. And so your first flight, we always sent the crew first over to Okinawa only for one reason as the the missions aren't I'm going to say I'll say the word demanding, they're all demanding, but they're not quite as demanding as flying out of Okinawa out of uh, England because the confines in England are tighter turns, they're they're steeper, there's more more threat over there than over in the Pacific so we sent them over to the Pacific for your first tour all the time I really everybody starts there do you remember the uh, the the target for your first mission uh, my first mission was it was a DMZ run you take off out of Okinawa and uh, refuel after takeoff get a full load of 80,000 pounds climb up and cruise you go in the Sea of Japan you can do it approach it two ways but we came in from the Sea of Japan so we were going from the northeast to the southwest in the DMZ, and it goes right smack down the middle of the DMZ. Then you get a little bit of intel on a, on a left-hand turn. You get a little bit of intel on China, and you start your descent back to Okanahua. Or or you could go out, get another load of gas, and do the DMZ run and come back the other direction just to, to see if they woke up. So, <laughs> Well, that's, that's what the, the whole SR-71 is, to be able to capture – on the sensors and the cameras and the recorders, did they even know you were there? Did they Did they even try to, re, you know, uh, shoot you down? Did right. they come up? Or did they just sort of not even know anything about it? So you learn a lot.
1: So while you were flying the SR, when you were flying it operationally, did, uh, was there ever uh, ever missile tone? Did anybody ever sort of take a shot at you?
2: The only thing I had, uh, we had a lot of electronic uh, false or maybe real my backseater he's got sensors back there to tell if they're locking on to you with their radar right. if they're launching he can tell that uh, we've get the signals but i've never had anything fired at me uh, the only mission i really saw some mig-25s I was taking off out of okinawa we we're going up to uh, it's called the Kamcheka peninsula it comes off of russia it belongs to russia at the very end of the Kamchatka peninsula is a place called um, uh, Petropavlovsk. We call it Petro for short. And Petropavlovsk had the Soviet Union's uh, a, a nuclear subpen, and it also had uh, an airfield. So we would go up quite routinely and image it. Well, on this mission, I took off out of Okinawa, uh, climbed up, cruised, descend, refuel off the coast of Japan, get a full load of gas, climb back up, level off 70, 72,000 feet. Now you're heading up to Petropavlovsk And you're going to image it off to the left, do a 9270 and come back, image it off to the, I'm sorry, image it off to the right on the way up and then reverse it, come back down for the 9270 and image it off to the left. While we were going up, perfect storm, uh, clear skies, blue Pacific water. You couldn't ask for better visibility and I could see probably, I would guess maybe, uh, 150 200 miles up ahead because i'm up high i'm up at 80 you know 75,000 feet and i saw a circle and i knew it was, someone was contrailing the closer i got i could actually see three distinct contrails so i knew there was three of something up there and as i got closer i saw those three aircraft whatever they were contrailing come up and trail with each other they were in about a 15 mile trail still contrailing and I, I know afterwards they were MiG-25s. And they, you could tell when they lit the afterburners because the, the contrail disappeared and they started doing a climb. Each one of them tried to come up and get us. I told Don in the back, he has a camera where he can take what we call happy snaps. He just pushes, <laughs> he, he just pushes a button back there and the camera, a camera will take a picture directly beneath the airplane. So I told Don, I said, hey, we got some MiGs coming uh, in trail uh i'll tell you when they get close and you can look through your view site and you can take some happy snaps <laughs> so we were cruising up and we were probably about close to eighty thousand now and uh pretty soon i said "Dawn, here they come and he i couldn't tell it then because they're underneath my nose uh, and that still has a long way to go so they're still flying but when i saw the pictures afterwards we got to see them about you know Two weeks later, you could see these MiG-25s just falling out of the skies. They, were, they, <laughs> oh, they sure. were out of ideas and out of thrust. Out of thrust, out of, uh, out of there, lift. <laughs> there, there isn't much concern of a MiG-25. Uh, first, what most people don't think about, even if they did fire a missile, let's say shot one of their missiles at us. They don't build missiles in Russia. We don't build missiles in the United States exclusively for shooting down an SR-71. Those little fins, those four little fins on those missiles are very small and they're optimized to dig into the thicker air at a 10 to 12, 15,000 foot altitude. At 80,000 feet, the air is so thin, those fins will go full deflection and that, bli- that missile's still gonna go ballistic. There's no air to bite into it. Now today, they have missiles that are thrust vectoring and all that, but I'm talking about my day. Right. So,
1: And the MiG-25 was uh, was one of the airplanes that was, you know, built to to counter high-altitude, high-speed threats, like the XB 70 mm-hmm. uh, and then later the SR-71. Um, and there were, you know, there there were MiG-25s that broke that Mach 3 barrier, but from reports I've read, you know, a MiG-25 might do that once, and then it's time for new engines, yep. and, and that sort of thing. Um, but but speaking of sort of Mach 3 and speeds, one of the things that I've, I've been curious about is— when you're actually doing an imaging run, are you are you at maximum speed no, at that point? No, no, no. Are you having to slow down to get your pictures, and then it's Mach 3 to sort of bug out of there?
2: The speeds we cruise at for all the, all the operational missions will be cruising at Mach 3. You can push it up to 3.1, no yeah. problem. You're allowed to push it up to 3.2, no problem. We're allowed to push it up to 3.3 Mach if, two conditions, if... We thought we were in harm's way, and number two, if by going to 3.3 will help get you out of harm's way, we were allowed to go to 3.3. I've asked the test pilots that flew the SR-71, and I say, what's the fastest you've ever been? And they always come up with about 3.4 Mach, no faster than they've ever been in a test flight. So we're allowed to go to 3.1, 3.2, 3.3 under two conditions.
1: And I imagine that's something you've got to justify in a post-flight briefing and explain—
2: Everything, you, everything you do on an airplane, every five seconds, oh. everything. There, there's, there's so many pickups from throttle angle to speed, altitude, heading. Everything you do on, everything the sensors are doing, it's being recorded. You're not going to get away with anything. Oh. How much time on average between missions? Uh, basically, we had three crews at Okinawa, three at Mildenhall. And the latter, we call it the, the flying ladder, the crew at the top, the primary flyers then below them would be the backup crew, and the third crew would be having the day off. So you would be primary, you'd fly the mission, then you go to the day off, the bottom of the ladder, you go to get a day off, then the next day you may be the backup, and on the third day you may be a primary again. You probably, at each, we did six-week tours at both locations, Okinawa and the six weeks. You probably got in Six missions, one oh. a week, maybe seven missions while you were at each location, maybe eight at the very most. Wow.
0: The, uh, first off, I'm just impressed that you uh, you went to Russia, had MiG 25s come up at you, and you guys decided to take a screenshot, basically. Right, exactly. I think that's phenomenal. Using wow. a Snapchat filter <laughs> yes, or exactly. something. I'll tell you Killed something. I'll tell you something. See, <laughs> the, I'll
2: tell you something even more imagine, uh, imaginable. <laughs> and this has to do with right here at Oshkosh. I met Victor Balenko here at Oshkosh, oh. and Victor Balenko and I, ever since we met, I've always every time I came to Oshkosh, he and I would always make a, a, a trip. I knew where to find him; he knew where to find me, <laughs> and we would always go out to lunch and talk.
1: And his and book, he, Mig Pilot, about his defection with the Mig 25.
2: That's it. That's and, fascinating. And that's the, the thing that still amazes me today. I don't know if he's still coming to Oshkosh. But Russia doesn't forget much about defectors. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised he hasn't had the, the big drink or something like that. <laughs> right. I, yeah. I, he's just very open. Yeah, <laughs> the, the nine millimeter brain hemorrhage. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, one of the questions I had was, did you did you fly the same plane? Like, were you assigned a plane, or did you fly? Uh, a a various amount of airplanes, and um, are any of the ones that you flew still around in museums or anything that you went out to visit? Yeah, every,
2: each detachment uh, for a year, they would have, at, at Okinawa, we had three SRs, and over at Milton Hall, we had two SRs. And people say, why three over at Okinawa, and why two over at Milton Hall? It's because of the salt water all around Okinawa. That's an island. There's nothing but salt water, and you can even feel it in the air, and salt water does a corrosion. It does a lot of nasty stuff to your wire bundles and electronics. So we kept three over there. That's what we needed, whereas at Mildenhall, we didn't need that.
1: So. And the, the rest of the fleet is at Beale, or is, are there
2: are there airplanes back at Beale? No, we rotate them every year. Just rotate them? Rotate oh, okay. them. Every year, three would go over one location, and two would go over the other location. We did okay. it every summer. Usually it's June or July. We would rotate them out every year.
0: Wow, okay. Was there a was there an airplane that was like maybe special to you, or one that you enjoyed to fly the most?
2: Well, the one that was the best flyer, that I think most crews would agree, was tail number nine seven two. It's the one that set the record uh, speed records from uh, New York to London, and uh, it, it it just it just hummed all the time. It was a good flyer. You didn't have to worry about unstarts and a few other mechanical errors that cropped up. Uh, I'm not saying the others were bad. I'm just saying that one was the one that everyone liked to fly. It Was nine seven two.
0: That's the one that's in the Smithsonian, right, Nudvarhazy? hazy that's the one that's in the Smithsonian. Oh,
2: okay. Yeah. So when you're at, uh, when you're you're flying at these speeds, we're
1: talking, you know, Mach three plus, um, two 2,000, 2,100 miles an hour mm. somewhere that's in it. that in that neighborhood. I mean, you're at eighty thousand feet. You're in a pressure suit. Um, the the sky is dark. Real dark. Point, really dark. Uh, you're seeing the curvature of the Earth. Definitely. And. I don't know how, how do you try to how do you describe that to somebody who's never never been there? <laughs> I, that's that's the question, isn't it? Well,
2: yeah it is, but uh, it's there I like the variety of uh, looking at the sun the sun the sun is so brilliant up there when you go into a turn as that sun sweeps through the cockpit you can't see anything. There's no instrument. So we have what we call bat wings. If you ever looked at a picture in one of my books, you'll see these little two wings on each side. Those are bat wings to chase the sun. They expand out. You can move them around there on a, a, a U joint. So they move all around the cockpit. But the sun is brilliant up there. It just it just boggles your mind. Uh, I can't think of anything else that really. As I was say, you don't, you don't have a great
1: view down no, so you're not you're not cruising along at Mach three, admiring the scenery per se, but you are, as I say, seeing curvature of the earth and things like that. That's just, you know, for those of us that that fly down at a thousand AGL, it's just, <laughs> it's uh, it's staggering to imagine. And when you think about, uh, you know, for people listening out, the next time you're on a commercial flight, you're about half that altitude. Yeah. So imagine being, you know, another another eight miles up uh, uh. from there to see what uh, what that view was. Um, so what were your thoughts, what were your feelings when uh, when the
2: SRs were finally and officially retired? Uh, I was the vice wing commander, and then very fortunately I became the wing commander. And right, I, I, I'd I heard the, well, I had to do a lot of justification even back in the 97, 98, uh, because they wanted to close it. It finally closed down in 1990 was a closure. Uh, I thought it was sad. Uh However, you need to realize on the other side of the coin it's a very, very expensive operation. You figure out these 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 thirty five tankers are dedicated to nothing but the SR seventy one. The JP seven fuel is one of a kind fuel. Everything was unique about the airplane. It's right. so a very, very expensive airplane. Very expensive. even the tires are the tires. Yeah.
1: tires are different and expensive, every every aspect of it. Um, so I'm going to I'm gonna put you on the spot. Uh, do you think that we have anything out there faster anything that's out there that's flying that's that we don't really know about
2: not an air breather i, I don't think an air breather they you know the u2 still doing good sure. it's it's a standoff platform does great for standoff relay stuff but, you know finding targets and all that but uh, i don't think there's anything going that fast right now i just don't
1: because you know we can cover it better and easier with satellites Satellite, that's and right. things and it's You know, the kid in me wants to say, well, there's, we got to keep going faster. You know, the SR-72 is going to be awesome (laughs) because, you know, but it's, but, but you have to think of the realities of the mission and what's, and what's necessary. And and putting, uh, putting a little box in space at 17,000 miles an hour is, is plenty fast in its own right. It's just,
2: uh, it's just a different kind of cool.
0: Do you, uh, do you keep in touch with your
2: backseater, or did you guys remain oh, yeah. friends? Yeah, Don. He, he lives down in uh, Corpus Christi. Don is uh, working very – he's very involved with the Commemorative Air Force. <laughs> Anyhow, Don's down there. We see each other a lot. Yeah. Fact, oh, that's awesome. he, He's coming up to see us in uh, my house in another couple of weeks. Yeah. Oh, that's and awesome. we get together. Uh, that's
1: terrific. Uh, you've mentioned uh, a couple times, throughout You've written uh, you've written a couple of books. You can tell five us of them. you've written five books. Wow. Apologies, I, I only was aware of yeah. of a few of that. Can you can tell us about your books and and uh, and where do we get them?
2: I started the first one in 1995, and ironically, it didn't plan this way. Each of the other five books, all five books were five years apart. Uh, I think my publisher probably had that done. <laughs> uh, each one's a little bit different. Uh, I, I try to Compass what the theme of the book is. Like, First of all, my very first book, people ask me, it's paperback, all the others are hardback. They said, what's this paperback one well, on? I said, that's my very first book. When you write a book, if you ever did, you don't really have a vision of writing any more. Right. So I tell people, this book has everything in it you need to know in a very condensed form. And it's my, my baby, if you will, the first book you write. All the others sort of expand now on all this stuff that's in the first book.
1: Sure. Uh, are they all still in
2: print? Yes.
1: And presumably Amazon and other uh, yes. online retailers yeah. would be good places yeah. to find I, those? I
2: don't know if you want to get a plug in here or not, but I sell it on eBay, Oh, terrific. And uh, if you want to get on eBay, if you want my signature on it, you have to make sure that the uh, seller's ID is H-A-B-U-5. Oh, Habu. Habu, 1974 to 1981. That's that's my whole H-A-B-U-5, 1974 to 1981.
1: And for those that don't know, tell us where the Habu nickname came from.
2: Uh, It comes from a snake on Okinawa. It's a very, it's a black adder. Uh, it's a very aggressive snake. We've really ran the gamut. where yeah, we really <laughs> have. We went from
1: from uh, flying to animals. Well, yeah. speaking of flying really quickly. so after you got out of the Air Force, you had an airline career?
2: Yeah, it's 13 years in American Airlines. And uh, uh, did you ever fly privately? Did you ever fly recreationally? Mm. I'm teaching right now. So when I, when I retired out of American Airlines uh, in 2002, I hit the Magic 60, which is 65 now, sure. but it was 60. Uh, there's an airport up north of where I live in Plano, Texas. is called McKinney Airport. And in McKinney, there's a Texans Flying Club, T-E-X-I-N-S Flying Club. And I thought, you know, I want to keep my hands in this for a while. So I went up and joined the Texans, and I'm one of their instructors up there right now. Oh, that's terrific. Flying
1: yeah. what kind of airplanes?
2: Uh, we've got four high wings, Cessnas, and we've got three low wings, mostly Pipers. Wow, that's excellent.
1: Yeah. It's yeah. Um, it's always fascinating to me to talk to somebody who has flown something so as remarkable as SR-71 or, you know, Space Shuttle or U-2 or, hmm. you know, something along these lines who still uh, gets something, still derives something out of just doing traditional general aviation flying. I mean, do you still love to fly?
2: Yeah, yeah. I like it. I, I, my greatest reward is when my students get done with their check ride and they've passed I and mean, they have this beam in their eyes and a big grin and you know sure. I did it and I, it makes me feel good
1: it's yeah. like I have met a, a handful in my career a handful of, of military pilots who uh, I remember an f-18 pilot in particular so we'll pick on the Navy for a second um, who as soon as he got out of the Navy asked you know well what are you flying now and he said well nothing there's nothing as good as an f-18 so I'll never fly an airplane again and I I suppose I can understand that on some level, but that's that person and I are not cut from the same cloth mm-hmm. when it comes to aviation, how you're just, just because you can't go that fast anymore, you know, you're never going to, you're just never going to do it again. But I think to some people in that role, and that's that's okay if that's them, to them it's a job. Yep. And I think it sounds like to you, it's been much more of a lifelong, it has, lifelong yeah. passion, yeah.
2: which is... From the day my dad taught me how to prop an airplane, uh, right. put gas in it and put oil in it, uh, I've loved airplanes.
1: So you're not sitting there in the 172 just rolling your eyes and saying, I wish I
2: were seventy-nine thousand feet higher. <laughs> I get and ten times, as fast, and 20 can times get the, as fast. I can get the same thrills out of some student flying, yeah. trust <laughs> me. <my head. laughs> sure. yeah, exactly.
1: Your, your student's first landing and you're thinking, God, I miss the MIGs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll take the Wild Weasel missions. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Put me over there, just launching <laughs> missiles at me. Those were the days. <laughs> well, wow. Well, I think that uh, that takes us right to the end of our uh, of our time. Uh, so, Colonel Graham, thank you again so much, uh, not only for joining us and coming out to speak in our museum again as we're recording this. The speaker series is tonight, although this will be released later. Uh, we sure appreciate that. And once again, thank you for your uh, years and years of, of remarkable service to this great country.
2: Thank you. I appreciate
1: having me here. So with that, uh, thanks also uh, to Ty behind the board for making it all happen. Thanks to everybody out there who's listening. Uh, boy, if you like the show, it means the world to us. If you can head over to iTunes or, or wherever you consume it, leave us a review. You can always email feedback to feedback at org. Or if you go uh, get the podcast episodes from our Hangar Flying blog at org, there's a section for comments below each episode. Uh, the feedback we get from you is the the first and only reason uh that uh, that we're able to continue producing these and putting them together so it means the world to us and uh and boy we are proud of uh, we are proud of the wonderful reviews that we get and the nice good uh five-star rating we have over there on itunes that's something to be definitely be proud of so with that thanks again to everybody out there for listening and we'll catch up with you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot